0: Good morning. Mm. Now fewer people are here for the last uh, part of the retreat. That's quite normal. Um, There are several questions. (coughs) Question number one is uh, when I am mindful of something for example like breath what am I supposed to be doing? (laughs) (laughs) When you are mindful of something be mindful of that That's what you are doing. (laughs) What else? But you say, like breathing, then you say, (coughs) just watching uh, boring quickly. Actually, uh, it can be boring to some people because when they uh, don't uh, see what is happening when they uh, watch, when they are mindful. Either you gain concentration or you deepen your insight. In order to deepen insight, when you are watching, you give uh, breath as an example. There are several things happening uh, to your breath. If you are really mindful, uh, you will not be bored because Uh, every new moment is a fresh moment. So your mind is refreshing. Secondly, when you watch the breath, you can see the first inhaling and exhaling, and then you notice long inhaling, long exhaling, (coughs) Then you notice the beginning, middle and end of inhaling, beginning, middle and end of exhaling. Then you notice when the lungs are full, inhaling, uh, lungs are full with the inhaled breath, you experience a degree of pressure. As you breathe out, That pressure is released, and then you experience a degree of anxiety for not having breath in your lungs. As you breathe in again, that anxiety fades away, and then you notice the breath either uh, gross or subtle. Then you notice the deep breath and shallow breath. Then you notice the softness and hardness of your breath. Then you notice the feeling of breath, feeling either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. There are so many things to watch, (coughs) to notice. All these are happening while you are breathing in and out. But if you make your mind totally blank and watch the breath without noticing any of these things, it is really boring. We go to watch the breath to understand the very nature (coughs) of breath. It also has elements. This is called the body, as I mentioned the other day. This is called the body. The body has earth element, air element, water element, fire element. Earth element we experience when the the breath touches. (coughs) When it is soft or hard, we experience this softness or hardness. That is because of the presence of earth element in the breath. We experience the um, sensation, uh, experience uh, uh moisture of the breath or uh, dryness of the breath. That is because of the, the water element. <coughs> sometimes we experience the hot heat of our breath, sometimes cool of our breath, that is because of the fire element. And we definitely notice the breath moving in and out, that is because of the air element. All the four elements are there. There are many things to notice, of course, uh, uh, if you were to name all of them, label all of them and notice and watch, you go crazy because uh, you go to find particular label to stick on your experience. But if you simply pay attention to the breath, uh, while noticing all these things, if breath uh, becomes subtler and subtler and subtler, you gain a very good concentration. When the breath becomes very extremely subtle, you even may not notice the breath, but the place where you focus the mind on, will you will remember. That would be your object or secondary object. First is the breath, second is the memory of the place where you watch the breath. That means either rims of your nostrils, tip of the nose, upper lips, or inside the nose between eyes. These variations depend on the formation of nose. Some people have a little high lift, therefore they feel the breath touching the lip. Some people's nose is uh, bent down, they will notice the touch of breath at the tip of their nose. Some have straight nose, they will experience the breath at the rims of their nostrils. Some may have little uh, high uh, uh, end of the nose. They may experience breath touching right inside the nose between eyes. So individuals have to breathe uh, several times to find out where the breath touches. And that becomes a memory later on, not the breath itself. And also when we become mindful of the the beginning, middle, and end of each breath, eventually we will uh, uh, notice the beginning, middle, and end becoming uh, end of inhaling joined with the beginning of exhaling. So then the breath will become one object, just like uh, one cylindrical object. We pass that stage and then we uh, don't notice the breath at all. And that is the time we remember the breath. And then that, that memory becomes the secondary object. This is called patibhaga nimitta in Pali. Then we focus the mind on this memory. And then even the memory will be replaced by a very bright light. And then that it will be very sharp, small spark of light which will disappear, giving rise to very bright, clear light. That time you gain concentration, very deep, profound concentration with the jhanic quality. That is how you gain concentration from. the focus in mind on the breath. First you will notice the details and you develop your insight. and then you d- the details will fade away, then you gain concentration. When you gain concentration, that is the time you will notice very subtle, deep changes in your experiences. That means at that time you develop insight again with the uh, uh, highest quality of insight to see impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness in a very deep level so that your greed, hatred and delusion will fade away. This is how we this is these are the steps of gaining attaining stages of enlightenment like stream entry and so forth. so uh, therefore it will never be boring. Another question. Can someone develop a successful insight meditation uh, practice without uh, without a decent grasp of Buddhism? Is there a published dictionary or book of Pali Pali words that uh, uh that the that are relevant eh? uh, that are relevant relevant Avail- are eh? re- relevant relevant i yeah. see i'm sorry yeah. relevant to understand to learn. Understand, learn, understand to help appreciate the teaching. Appreciate the teaching. Okay, thank you. Uh, the first question is: Can uh, someone develop uh, successful insight meditation practice without uh, a decent uh, grasp of Buddhism? When when one uh, Really deepens in insight, the person will see the whole picture of Buddhism, because insight uh, shows the the truth of the Dhamma. That is, uh, especially these three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness, which are very, very often emphasized in the Buddha's teaching. And the details uh, you can fill in later on by reading Buddhist books. Uh, you know, uh, people who uh, even attain enlightenment at first have not been educated people. In the Buddha's time, they inst- very quickly they understand the truth and then they uh, get involved in knowing the theory. That's one way. If you learn the theory, it is so fascinating. You would like to read. That is what the most people do. They love to read. And they read and read and read and read and there are 50,000 pages in Buddhist, uh, Buddhist literature, 50,000 pages. So it's a quite a bit of uh, Buddhist literature. Uh, what can read. And then commentaries and sub commentaries, several thousands of pages. So you may um, enjoy reading all of them, but while uh, meditating, if you want to have some uh, theoretical understanding of Buddhism. We like to recommend few books. Uh, at least you read they are all available in English. Uh, the best best to learn is first learn Pali <laughs> <laughs> and read English translations or trans- read English translations and read Pali. It is little difficult, but some people do it. So, first, let me recommend an easier way. <coughs> Read English translations. Uh, there are five uh, books, very good modern translation. One is called Sanyutta Nikaya. It is only not very big, but only 2,200 pages. This big, it comes in two volumes, so one volume, more than 2,200 pages. It's called Connected Discourses of the Buddha. Very well translated by, in modern English, by an American monk called Bhikkhu Bodhi. And the second book also he translated into English from the original translation, is called Majjama Nikaya. that is only 1000 few hundred pages and uh, translated into english as uh, middle length sayings of the buddha there are only 152 discourses and the third is called Deigha Nikaya. that is only 1000 pages not very big <laughs> Translated by Maurice Walsh, a British, uh, is called Long Discourses of the Buddha. Fourth is called Anguttara Nikaya, uh, gradual sayings. Uh, it has been translated by, Pali Tech Society, uh, that may have um, about two thousand pages. These are original texts, and then uh, the fifth is called Kudaka Nikaya, which has only seventeen volumes, uh, <laughs> run, run run into maybe two three thousand pages. Now altogether six thousand pages. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> too much reading. <laughs> However. Uh, I recommend you to read at least the first one, uh, Sangyutta Nikaya. It is easy to read because it has uh, classified into uh, various groups under different topics. Uh, And therefore it is easy to read. Beautiful translation. Um, And then dictionaries... There is one uh, PTS dictionary, Pali Text Society dictionary, uh, that is available from Pali into English, and there is a English into Pali dictionary trans- written by a monk called Buddha Datta, and there are some Pali terms uh, translated by German monk, that is called uh, Buddhist uh, dictionary, but. Uh, it's not a very big one. And Bhikkhu Bodhi also has made a little uh, book, book uh, on translating certain difficult Pali terms. Another dictionary is coming up. Uh, that will take another century to complete. We may not allow to use that dictionary, but it is coming up. So at least uh, get hold of uh, these books. And dictionary and uh, you will have a good... And also to read uh, on meditation, there are several book, books on meditation. Uh, Vipassana meditation, tranquility meditation and so forth. Some of them you may find in the basement of this building <laughs> somewhere. Uh, so, is there going to be a list of where all these books are? I mean, is there going to be available a list of these books you mentioned? Oh yes, this... Uh, Okay, he will put the list later on. Now, here is a very philosophical question: Who is being mindful? If we were to uh, ask question like this, uh, the question wording of the question should be corrected because the very wording. Uh, is misleading. To ask who is being mindful is incorrect because we do not believe that there is a who since there is no being living inside us. Therefore, the question should be what is being mindful? What is happening? in mindfulness, something like that. So, this phenomenon called a being become mindful. Then what is the being? If you don't use the word who, we have to use another term, what is a being? There was a monk called Radha, he asked the Buddha one day, Vendabha, sir, what is a being? So Buddha gave a long, very real philosophical answer. That entity which clings to form, feeling, perception, thought, and consciousness is a being. An entity that clings to form, feeling, perception. In Pali he said, uh, your rupas being satto asattho, vedanaya sattati, asattati. Idangujati, rather, sattto, an entity that clings to form, holds on to form, uh, stuck in form, that entity is called being. It is this entity that is mindful, that means a phenomenon. We call it a being for our own con- convenience. We call a being or person or I. Doesn't matter. It's perfectly alright for us to call I am mindful. But behind this I am, there is no I. <laughs> that is why it is difficult to understand. But only for conventional. Uh, communication purpose we must use the word I. So it is a phenomenon that's uh, become mindful itself. Second question the anagami no return or arahant one who will not be reborn. Since they are not coming back, do we know where they go? Where did the Buddha go? It is helpful if I fail to uh, talk about this, for I know it will help one let go easier. for otherwise. Enlightenment sounds like poof. <laughs> <laughs> one, one is gone, <laughs> disappears <laughs> from all existence. <laughs> you see? Actually. Mm, I actually don't blame anybody for asking questions like this, because that is a very normal thing. Uh, so long as we don't understand what enlightenment is, uh, uh, what uh, who Arahant uh, is, uh, Anagami, and so forth, it's a very uh, sincere question. It's also very uh, uh, important to know uh, the answer. Although we cannot give you a full answer, (laughs) it is very important to know. Um, This is what we call attaining uh, Nibbana. (coughs) When we attain Nibbana, uh, we end this uh, cycle of birth and death. Cycle of birth and death. Uh, When we end, the cycle of birth and death, uh, if one were to ask, uh, when the cycle ends, then what? Sometimes people say, uh, if everybody attains enlightenment, attains Nibbana, everybody, I mean no, not one single being, on this whole universe, everyone attains full enlightenment. People ask, then what happened to the world? Who cares? (laughs) When everybody attains, you know, so long as we are here, we care for each other, uh, because each other has problems, pain, suffering and so forth, but everybody is free from suffering, pain. No one is there to suffer. Why should you worry? Because there is nobody to suffer. Everyone has full enlightenment, completely free from suffering. And still you want somebody to be here to suffer? (laughs) That is the state many people cannot understand. When we attain full enlightenment, what we will simply simply have is a peaceful eternal bliss. Do you want something less than that? When you have full enlightenment and full bliss forever, what else you need? So that is what happens When one attains enlightenment and attain Nibbana, never return. of course, still has some existence in a state called pure abode. There are five pure abodes. They are called Suddhavas in Pali. Uh, Anaga means uh, stay there until they attain full enlightenment. Arahans and the Buddhas, once they have attained full enlightenment, they are <coughs> in a uh, in a phenomenon called uh, the bliss of emancipation and uh, and buddha said that there is some state called nibbana uh, in, in Udana, he has very clearly stated there is Nibbana. Nibbana is, that is the only is. Others can be is, was, will be, divided into three time category. Nibbana is the one which always is, no past, no future, but is only in the present. And Buddha said, there is such state where there is there are no uh, elements or beings and ups and downs and directions and uh, past and future changes, this and that. None of those things exist. And therefore, one, one, once a person attains uh, enlightenment, That individual, not as an individual with hands, legs, eyes, ears, body, tongue, and eating, drinking, playing mahjong, and you know, (laughs) gambling and casinos and all this, they don't have. (laughs) But the bliss, eternal bliss, pervades forever. That is called Nibbana. Uh Okay. <coughs> you asked me to give my insight that is my insight. <laughs> Here is another question. In your book 8 mindful steps to happiness you write that uh, Loving friendliness is not love as we ordinarily understand it. It is not uh, conditioned by the behavior or qualities of a person. Loving friendliness motivates us to be kind to everyone. What did the Buddha have to say about uh, personal love? Do personal love relationships and uh, Lady loyalties, as we normally understand them, have a value in spiritual life. Do they play a part in uh, bringing us closer to enlightenment? Okay, the first part, I don't have to say anything about it, but let me. uh, say a few words about the second part. What did the Buddha have to say about personal love? <coughs> personal love, of course, is uh, uh, is important for um, people's uh, uh, relationship uh, to be together, uh, to support each other uh, emotionally, and uh, maintain their uh, sense of security, uh, satisfy their emotions, uh, make their life uh, harmonious, this personal love is uh, important. And if they live that life uh, with uh, a personal connection, with uh, 100% honesty, sincerity, and uh, being faithful to each other, that's an ideal life uh, for, for lay people. <coughs> uh, it is sometimes possible. Some people live like that. Always the problem arises when there are frictions, misunderstanding, distrust unfaithfulness, ungratefulness, uh, their emotions, anger, hatred, jealousy, fear, rivalry. When these things uh, come to play, then this relationship is very difficult. So, uh, Buddha has given very special discourse to lay people. There is a very uh, famous one, in Dignikaya, which is called sigalovada sutta a discourse delivered to a person called sigala where he has given instructions how to live uh, the spouses partners uh, children uh, parents uh, brothers sisters teachers students masters and workers uh, the country and the the people, king and uh, rulers and their subjects, and so forth and so on, whole list of things, and how to make friends, uh, their duties and responsibilities to each other. And this whole discourse is called Layman Code of Discipline. Layman Code translated into English as Layman Code of Discipline. And there are many other sutras in Digha Nikaya, especially Kutadanta Sutta, Danta Sutta, uh, Bharadvaja Sutta, so many sutras, uh, uh, uh Parabhava Sutta, Mangala Sutta, uh, and so forth. Discourses uh, Buddha delivered especially for lay people to live their household lives. (coughs) Uh, And Buddha always praised the good, noble uh, relationship uh, between uh, spouses and uh, partners. So, and if they live that kind of life, observing only five precepts, even they can attain full enlightenment. I just mentioned it, I think it was yesterday when I. Was it yesterday? Two days ago. Two days ago uh, when I met uh, Jack Cornfield's uh, group. Uh, I mentioned the uh, a story of uh, uh, Bingasala, uh, a woman who. Uh, invited Venerable Ananda for lunch. After lunch, she asked Venerable Ananda a question. question was, her father was Purana, her uncle, father's brother, was Isidatta. She said, my father, Purana, became a celibate as soon as I was born. After that, he maintained celibacy. And he practiced dhamma, practiced meditation, attained the second level of enlightenment. And the Buddha declared, acknowledged, that he had attained second level of enlightenment. My uncle, Isidatta, enjoyed sensual pleasure to the end of his life. Never observed celibacy. When he died, Buddha declared, even he Attain the second level of enlightenment. So her question was, "Venerable, I cannot understand this. My father, observing celibacy, attained second level of enlightenment. And my uncle, not observing celibacy, attained the second inla- level of enlightenment. I cannot understand. Can you explain it to me?" Venerable Ananda said, uh, "Well, that is what the Buddha said, and he went away." That was not a much of an answer. <laughs> <laughs> he went and reported this to the Buddha. And Buddha said, Ananda, it is true that her father was a devotion-oriented person, faith-oriented person. So he observes celibacy in order to practice Dhamma and meditation. Her uncle, Isidatta, was a wisdom oriented person. He knew how to balance his life, live a balanced life. And therefore, he too attained the second level of enlightenment. So if people learn how to live a balanced life, decent human life, lay, lay life, uh, There are many people who are very 100% honest, sincere. It is possible for them to attain enlightenment. Sincerity is the number one qualification. Sincerity, honesty. Honest to oneself, honest to others. uh, So that mind always remains very, very steady, powerful, clean... As soon as the person sits to meditate, gain concentration very quickly. Why? First person is honest, sincere. And this is one of the joys, happiness, I think I mentioned it, uh, having wealth and so forth, is a happiness. At the same time, if the person knows that the person earned wealth Honestly, in the noble means, even that understanding, that memory, that realization is a source of happiness. Having wealth is a a blessing. But if the person earns that wealth, honestly, sincerely, that is additional happiness. So, uh, all depends on How we use? You know, this life itself is neither good nor bad. Money is neither good nor bad. Houses are neither good nor bad. But depending on how we use the body, how we use the money, how we use the house, make the difference. It's something very neutral, can be made into uh, biased. So, all depends on how we use our body, mind, money, and so forth. They are neither moral, nor immoral, but amoral. <laughs> if we understand them, and uh, Accept and live honestly. That's so, about the story of the hair and soup—is <laughs> this—is uh, this why monks have shaved heads, <laughs> so that they don't have this problem? In fact, uh, uh, that is an uh, additional uh, reward not to have this problem. Uh, But uh, monks shave their head uh, uh, for many other reasons too. One is to make uh, life very simple. when we have hair, uh, you know how much trouble you have <laughs> to maintain it. Uh, when when you are en- entertaining and enjoying and having you know great pride in your hair, when hair falls, <laughs> you feel very s- disappointed. <laughs> So that is not the issue actually, to make us simple, keep the head clean. Uh, if, you, if you have a dandruff problem, just shave your head <laughs> and apply little lotion, you will not have dandruff. All other things are useless. so (laughs) I mean that's very 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 simple, easy shave the head apply some lotion every morning have a little wash apply, go on so it's simple there will not be uh, lice you know some people have lice on their head when we shave our head we don't have that so for these reasons, to keep the head clean, make life simple, um, and make us look humble. You know, one of the things that they recite, as soon as we ordain, we say, uh, in in Pali, we say, uh, one me that's a very beautiful sentence. I have become unattractive after shaving my head i i made myself unattractive to make us simple and we uh, think uh, uh, after that we must say from now on, I must have a different mode of behavior different mode of living then so many there are ten such uh, things we must recite uh, i am from now on, I live dependent upon people. And so forth. So, we, these reasons for these reasons we shave our head. Uh, not because of the soup and so forth. <laughs> Another question, Is it possible to attain Nibbana or enlightenment while living in the world, fulfilling worldly duties? I answered that question. Already. The seven years, seven year money back guarantee <laughs> does, does it come with the five precepts or eight? <laughs> what about eating meats and uh, driving, uh, drinking alcohol? Is it possible without uh, uh, renunciation? Okay. Five precept, observing five precept is enough uh, to have this money back guarantee attainment. <clears throat> you know this discourse was delivered to people in Kuru, in a marketplace called Khamma Sadhamma. When Buddha went there and Gave this sermon, several beautiful, very profound sermons he delivered in that particular place. When he addressed people, they all were not bhikkhus, not meditators. We don't know how many bhikkhus were there, but he addressed everyone as a bhikkhu. Ekayano bhikkhave maggo, ekayano bhikkhave maggo. That is how he began the discourse. Bhikkhus there is one direct way of attaining this level. And then he delivered the sermon. And people whom he met were not bhikkhus. They were lay people. So, and it is to them that he gave this guarantee to these lay people. So whoever practices this seriously can attain that. Observing five precepts is absolutely necessary and observing the eight precepts is uh, additional qualification uh, to make it even quicker. Eating meat and drinking alcohol. (coughs) Eating meat uh, is not uh, an impediment uh, the attainment of liberation uh, provided you don't go out and kill and raise animals for slaughter Uh, animal products uh, people use uh, anyway as medicine Uh, when there is animal product in their medicine uh, they they can take it and uh, get cured Uh, suppose uh, They are invited to somebody's house and they happen to be meat and they eat. Uh, They are not part of uh, killing directly and so forth. Uh, In order to avoid embarrassment, to make the host uh, uh, disappointed, avoid disappointing the host and so forth. If you very mindfully uh, eat what you receive, uh, that's all right. There can be meat or fish in this food. For Buddhist monks who go out collecting food into the arms balls, they don't choose. (coughs) They are, you know, sort of a kind of beggars. Beggars are not choosers. (laughs) (laughs) They eat whatever they receive. And so forth. But alcohol, by all means we can avoid, we must avoid. And it is not going to uh, help us anyway. It uh, confuses our mind and get into a lot of problems, health and so forth. Uh, it is possible without renunciation? Yes, it is possible. But there is a kind of renunciation. Everybody who practices meditation, whether lay people or monastics, practices renunciation in the widest sense of the term. Generally the word renunciation is used for uh, people leaving homes and going to monasteries. That is the, the, the common understanding of the word renunciation. But renunciation is in the very strict sense uh, renunciation means uh, letting go of our greed. Even as lay people we have to learn to let go of our greed. Letting go of greed is the renunciation. In the Noble Eightfold Path uh, that is the the right uh, uh, thought, right thought. Right thought, number one, is thought of renunciation. Their thought means just the thought of greed we let go. Letting go of our greed at any level, at any degree, is called renunciation. That's what we have to practice. Another question, what is the role of uh, uh, laughter. laughter I see, thank you what is the role of laughter if in spiritual life did the Buddha ever speak or teach about laughter <coughs> uh, uh, Buddha did not uh, say much about it but in commentaries uh, there are various uh, degrees of laughter they are uh, they, they listed uh, five of them Uh, like Sita, Hasita, Upahasita, Appahasita, and uh, so forth. Various degrees of, you know, starting with a very mild smile, till uh, very loud giggling. (laughs) They put them under various uh, grades or degrees. Buddha did not say anything about uh, laughter, but Buddha smiled <coughs> on several occasions. <coughs> when, he, when he smiled, uh, these occasions are you know, recorded <coughs> because these smiles have a very deep meaning. One day he saw a beggar. Seeing him, he smiled. So that is not, you know, something funny to see somebody begging. You might say Buddha was uh, sarcastic or, you know, insulting. No. He smiled. Then when Balananda was next to him and asked him, Sir, why did you smile? Buddha said, you know, this beggar was a multimillionaire. Now see what is he doing now. He said if he spent his money, energy when he was young he could have become number one rich person in this country. But he wasted that opportunity. And if he practiced dhamma, meditation, he would have attained full enlightenment. He passed that opportunity. He said, if in his middle age, if he used his money diligently, mindfully, he could have become number two millionaire, rich rich person in this country. And if he practiced meditation, Dhamma, he could have attained the third level of enlightenment, Anagami stage. And he wasted those moments. If he used his money, his wealth, in his latter part of his life, he could have become third richest person in this country. And if he meditated, he could have attained second level of enlightenment. Now he wasted. Instead, He wasted his time, his energy, his money, his opportunities by abusing his uh, money. Getting involved in doing wrong things, gambling, drinking and so forth. And wasted everything. Now he is a beggar. That is why he smiled. How foolish this person has been. So in his smiles, there always was a very deep meaning, something for us to learn. We laugh and smile when we have a joke, which doesn't make any sense. It simply makes us giggle. Uh, it's a meaningful smile, is. Uh, uh, very spiritual. Another question, will you come back to spirit rock? Uh, I like to come back, but I don't know when. (laughs) If there is no self, then what gets reincarnated? Uh, You know, this is uh, another very common question. We even don't use the word reincarnation. (coughs) Some people use it, but uh, when you look at the meaning of this word, uh, it has a limited uh, connotation. For that reason, we don't use the word. Uh, Reincarnation, uh, presume, uh, discarnation and incarnation. In, car- in carne, carne you know is in Spanish and uh, Portuguese, flesh. Con carne, sin carne when you go to restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, incarne is getting into flesh. Discarne is separating from flesh. And reincarne is re entering into flesh. So there, has, there always has to be flesh to take this life. In Buddhism there is a life without flesh. They are called formless existence. Form existence and formless existence. When you practice formless meditation and then die in that meditation, attainment, you will be reborn in formless realm. These, these are called Arupi, Brahma world. In order to include all these existences, we use the word rebirth or re becoming. That's a very meaningful uh, uh, word. So we don't use the reincarnation. Anyway, what gets into rebirth? there are three things happening. We have greed, ignorance, and karma. Greed is not a person, ignorance is not a person, karma is not a person. These are all phenomena. And when these three join together, at the moment of death, they propel into Another existence that can that existence may be with flesh or without flesh, depending on how karma is for, performed, how much ignorance we have, how much greed we have. and therefore, these are the three things that uh, uh, make next existence possible not any permanent self. Because if there is something permanent, it will never change. Rebirth is 100% perf- transformation from one state to another state. When we have 100% transformation from one state to another state, if there is something unchanging, permanent, eternal, that process cannot take place. It will not be one hundred percent transformation because there is something which does not change. And when the phenomena when it when it happens because of the phenomenon uh, that is possible. We can give many many examples, crude examples, but none of them is perfect. For instance, uh, you send an email. You just uh, type it to the computer. But your message, your words, your ideas instantly go somewhere. And the other person also can read exactly what you wrote. What really goes there? You send a fax. Your ink is here, your paper is here, fax machine is here, (coughs) but the message appears somewhere else. What does go there? Phenomenon. What do you call this? Electronic phenomenon. Manifest things from here to there. Uh, Rebirth is something like this. I mean, these are very crude examples. <laughs> uh, so rebirth is much subtler than that. Next question. Long ago, I had read somewhere that uh, upon enlightenment, uh, Buddha became free from all suffering, but he chose to uh, participate in the sorrows of the world. If true, can you elaborate? Uh, It is not true, therefore I am not going to elaborate. (laughs) 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 But but I say something about it. Why I say it is not true? (laughs) Because you know, some people, even learned people, believe in that. There was there is a statue in Sri Lanka. Statue's uh, hands are like this, and head is bent like this. Uh, one of our very learned uh, archaeologists uh, interpreted the meaning of that statue. He said that was the Buddha uh, suffering for the suffering beings in the world. And he even coined a term, para dukkha mudra. Mudra means posture. Para means other suffering. Para dukkha, suffering of others, Dukkita suffering. That means he suffers for the suffering of others. Friends, if Buddha were to suffer for the suffering of others he would have never had one single moment of peace because the world is full of suffering. There are billions of beings, trillions of beings suffering and he would have simply become an embodiment of suffering. That's not true. Buddha did not... (coughs) Your first part of the question is correct that Buddha overcame suffering and got free from suffering and he never suffered after that. He may have aches and pains here and there as he was growing old but never had any suffering. He had compassion for suffering beings and he tried to help those beings without himself suffering. It is an ordinary person who suffers for the suffering of others. That is, in fact, unhealthy. <clears throat> uh, perhaps you know, suppose you are a doctor, a nurse, uh, a doctor sees so many patients crying in pain. If the doctor happens to be compassionate, he simply has to cry with the patients. (laughs) They don't do that. They remain steady emotionally and treat the patient. So are the nurses. They see patients crying all the time in hospitals. If they were to cry with those patients, they cannot do their job. In an emergency, very panicky, panicky situations, They simply must remain very steady, very alert, very mindful to treat the patient correctly. That was the position of the Buddha. He knows the suffering of others. He was so mindful about it and he gave full, perfect treatment. So it's not true to say that Buddha suffered with the suffering of others. What is the role of uh, attitude? As I sit outside, I am aware of the breeze, temperature, pressure, its uh, changing nature. One time the breeze may feel cold and I want away from it. Another time the breeze may be uh, pleasant, when, I, when the sun is on me. And a third time in the heat of the day, I may long or crave for breeze. The difference is not in the breeze, but in the attitude towards the breeze. If I hold to any of the attitudes, then I suffer. If I do not attach to the attitude then as the breeze comes or goes I do not suffer. That's very true. Uh, Actually this is uh, is a part of the answer to the other question also. Uh, When our attitude is healthy, strong, uh, mindful, we remain equanimous doesn't matter what the other conditions are. So breeze is just a breeze, whether it happens in when we are in a hot, sun, hot sun or cool place. If we acknowledge that, is we feel the breeze when it, when we are in a cold place when the breeze uh, blows, we feel the cold. We d- we don't become um, we are not averse to the breeze at that time. So we accept it and uh, understand the feeling. Another question, can you <coughs> say something about uh, uh, living your daily life uh, with uh, commitment to impermanence, with or without uh, clinging and uh, grasping, but dedicated to uh, right effort and the eightfold path? Um this is a very uh, good question requiring a long answer. I simply uh, must say, <coughs> our, in our daily life, uh, seeing impermanent, unsatisfactoriness uh, and selflessness without clinging to anything pleasant or without rejecting anything unpleasant, or grasping anything pleasant, uh, understanding the that very nature of experience uh, is a very healthy way to develop, cultivate right effort to follow the noble eightfold path. Another question: How do we let go of those whom we love? Actually. Suppose we love someone, very dearly we love, and that someone dies. Uh, Then, of course, we feel sad. That's very natural. We acknowledge the sadness. At the same time, we should not lose the sight of the truth, of impermanence. We acknowledge the the sadness and understand that I'm sad because I have attachment to this loved one. So uh, I must understand even loved ones are impermanent. I have not understood it. I simply clung to my loved one and therefore I have this suffering So we rationally, mindfully look at the whole situation, experiencing pain, sorrow, sadness, understand at the same time it is because of my attachment to the loved one. So, what to do? Even loved one passes away. So we understand it console ourselves, always look at the dhamma. Look at the dhamma. The truth. Then gradually we increase our insight into this reality and decrease our sadness towards losing our loved ones. Is it okay to take <coughs> your photograph with the uh, Boundless gratitude. <laughs> uh, I think at the end of the retreat, if you have time, we can do that. Whether you have boundless gratitude or limited, <laughs> limited gratitude doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, wish you a long, healthy life in this last birth. Thank you very much. Bante would you please repeat what you say at the end of the early morning sit? Uh, I said in uh, Pali, uh, which means there is no concentration without wisdom, no wisdom without concentration, one who has both, wisdom and concentration is close to peace and emancipation. That's what I recite. Next question. I'd be interested in uh, learning a bit more about uh, your uh, decision to become a monk and about the uh, center. Center. In Kampala. That is not addressed to me. That is addressed to him. (laughs) Let me finish this, then you can answer that, okay? What kind of blessings or wisdom do you tell a woman who will soon experience childbirth? We have a special blessing, which is called Anguli Mala Sutta. Anguli Mala was a very famous uh, criminal. (laughs) This sutra is named after that criminal. He became a monk. He has killed 999 people. And the discourse is after him. Because when he was going to kill the Buddha, Buddha converted him uh, to be a bhikkhu and then soon he attained full enlightenment. One day, when he was going on his arms round, he was standing in front of a house and from the house he heard a woman crying in pain, uh, labour pain. His heart melted. This person before didn't have any Compassion. He simply killed. Now he is filled with compassion. Went to the Buddha and reported this, and Buddha said, Angulimala, go and tell this woman. Repeat this passage. That is, as since I was born, I have never killed any living beings. By the power of this truth, may you deliver the baby without pain. Angulima said, Venerable sir, how can I say that? I have killed with my own hands 999 people. Now you ask me to go and tell lie to this woman. He said, no, 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 no. I am not asking you to tell a tell lie. You must remember, since you became a monk and attained full enlightenment, you never killed any living being. That is the truth. You used that truth as a power to give blessing to this woman. With this uh, strength, he went back to the house and standing outside, he recited, Sister, it says, bhagini arya jatya jato jivita voro peta.'" in Pali. He said, Sister, since I was born, I have never killed any living beings. By this truth, by this power, may you have safe delivery. As soon as he recited, this woman's pain, labor pain stopped, and she delivered very a safe baby. And since then, this has become our sutra to recite for uh, pregnant women just before their birth. Actually, for some reason, it seems work. Many women thanked us for reciting this. They don't understand the meaning. We recite it in Pali. And uh, they say they deliver babies uh, uh, without too much pain. This is what we do, and uh, if you have somebody, you just uh, recite it on a in in your own language, uh, remembering this venerable monk, Angulimale, by the power of Angulimales, very noble, pure enlightened heart he gave this blessing and that is the power with this power may you sister deliver your baby without any problem without any pain you may use these words in your own words to express this meaning I think that's all